0: You're listening to Matters of Engagement, a podcast examining issues at the intersection of health, healthcare, and society. I'm Jennifer Johannesson. And I'm Emily nicholas Angle. Hey, so we're back after a bit of a break. This will be our second to last episode in this health policy series, and we're busy sorting out what's next. So stay tuned for updates. Okay,
1: so in this episode, we're finally getting to a topic we've been thinking about for a long time. It's super current, but also kind of evergreen. Meaning it's kind of always been an issue and probably always will be. Yeah, we're talking about living in long-term care and what it's like from the
0: residents' perspectives to live under conditions that were not necessarily determined by them.
1: And we're also exploring what's required in order to give residents the autonomy they seek. So in this episode, We're going to hear from two people who live in long-term care
0: and who also lead their respective residence councils. You'll hear them share some of their experiences about living in long-term care, but more importantly, we want to amplify their observations and insights about how residents are included in decision-making. Or not.
1: Yeah, or not, through their involvement in residence councils. For added context, we also speak with Dee Tripp. She's the Executive Director of the Ontario Association of Residence Councils. We'll hear more about their work shortly.
0: We thought this would be an interesting addition to this public engagement and health policy series because it's a model of engagement and advocacy we haven't really discussed in any episode yet. It's a kind of hybrid approach. There are formal structures in which residents are invited to participate. You mean the residents' councils? Mm Mm-hmm. Each home has one, actually is legislated to have one. So that's the engagement part. And then there's the advocacy part which is where the Ontario Association of Residence Councils, or OARC, comes in. We'll unpack all of this throughout the
1: episode. Okay, so let's talk about residents for a minute. The people who live in long-term care homes. You know, I think there's a wide assumption that everyone living there could be classified as frail and elderly. But the truth is, there's a wide range of people with varying needs. And certainly, there are older folks, people with disabilities, or some kind of cognitive change, but not exclusively. What they have in common is a need for enhanced supports for activities of daily living. But the residents' ages and needs are actually quite diverse.
0: Yes, but despite this, long-term care, or LTC, residents are often painted with the same wide brush. They're thought of as vulnerable and in need of special protection yet the homes are almost perpetually underfunded
1: and understaffed. This can create conditions of too many restrictions and not enough services. Mm-hmm. And too often, what
0: gets overlooked is a sense that residents may actually have interests and priorities of their own. And while structures like the residence councils make an effort to include resident voices, there's just not always enough of a foothold to call it,
1: self-determination, or even self-advocacy. Yeah, and I mean it's partly because long-term care is subsidized by the government. Residents are subject to the rules and conditions imposed upon them. It's classic institutional living. And it may not feel that you have much control over your own environment. And you know, let's be honest, residents' ages, capacities, and life circumstances may not be conducive to spending much time on advocacy. Which is
0: why, in this case, having the support of a dedicated umbrella organization, like the OARC, is so helpful. They understand the ins
1: and outs of the legislation, the politics, and the power dynamics. Yeah, it's an interesting angle to explore because it's an example of an engagement practice that's bigger than just a few individuals recruited into an advisory. There's a broader agenda here, and one that aims to serve a common good for the residents. And there's recognition of the obvious need for professionalism and political savvy. Okay, well,
0: let's jump right in. Let's start by meeting our guests. There's Devorah.
2: Hello, everybody.
0: I am a resident in a long-term care home for,
2: it will be 11 years in February. And Gail.
3: So I'm Gail, I am in Ottawa. Been here for two years. So I arrived uh, in the middle of COVID.
1: Which is, you know. It's great to hear their voices again. We had the privilege of talking to Gail and Devora, who each live in a different long term care home. And we wanted to get their perspective on living in an LTC to better understand the extent to which they're able to contribute to policy and decision making. Or not? Yes, or not. OK, so let's hear a bit more from our guests.
0: We asked how they came to live in long term care. Here's Devora. The
2: reason I'm in long-term care is because I had a disability. I couldn't mock. I wasn't in long cur- long-term care to, to just be put there to, to wait to die. I, I went into long-term care because I couldn't manage by
0: myself. Like Devorah, Gail also lives in long-term care, so she can receive the type of support she needs to live as independently as possible.
3: I am here only because of a physical challenge and requirement for supportive help. My uh, intellect is completely intact, and uh, so I find it quite challenging being in long-term care in that, given that capacity.
1: Gail explained how not everyone living in long-term care has a cognitive change or impairment.
0: Yeah, now she herself is a bit of an anomaly in the long-term care context, as she's relatively young and able to communicate and advocate for herself we asked her to elaborate on how she feels about um, being because in the minority the
3: statistics are currently about 80% of the people living in long term care have some form of dementia or alzheimers so some um, decreased cognitive ability as and you know everybody has a path of course into long term care but part of the problem or part of the challenge for people like devora and i living in long term care is that fact is that um Um, percentage of people where when you live in a democracy that, you know, gears their programming or care to the majority to suit the majority, then when you're in that 20% or 15% minority, it becomes really challenging to live
1: in that space. Okay, so this is really interesting and something we'll pick up again later But with such a wide spectrum of needs and abilities in long-term care settings, trying to focus policy on resident priorities and interests is a complex undertaking. Yeah, and also for Gail, this presents issues at the
0: interpersonal level. People make a lot of assumptions about her capacities because of where she lives.
3: It's one of the big challenges, I think, for long-term care and, and for the health industry in general, in that there is nothing between living by yourself, being able to care for yourself or requiring help. And and the only solution is long-term care because independent living isn't available. So when you require physical help, there is no other alternative and nothing bothers me more than someone assuming that I have a diminished capacity and then, and then approaching me at that level. So, um, yeah, I think that's probably why I feel the need to, to, set, the sta- to set the stage properly.
1: Gail and Devora have very different needs. But they share a common desire to live as independently as possible. And as we're going to learn, there are many, many barriers to this happening. And at the root of a lot of those barriers is stigma and discrimination.
2: There are perceptions. And it it upsets me when I hear nasty comments about people who have to maybe go into long term care, where one lady said she would rather be naked in in a in um a, a flower field than go into long term care. That sounds very complimentary. And people call us nursing homes. Well, we're not nursing homes. We live active, fully, what's the word I need? (laughs) Engaged. Thank you. Fully engaged in all walks of life. As best, I have to clarify this, as best as we can. Not all of us are similar to Gail and myself when it comes to cognitive ability.
1: By the way, that additional voice was Melissa McVee from OARC. She was helping Devorah get connected for our call. Okay, so like usual, we've stumbled
0: into a couple of our common recurring themes. Definitely one is representation or representativeness. And we also have issues of fairness, autonomy, rights. Both Gail and Devora characterize living in long-term care homes
1: as living like second-class citizens. So to be clear, we didn't really talk about quality or consistency of care, though that might be a topic for another episode. But rather, they feel they're subject to different rules than everyone else, only because of their address as LTC residents. Okay,
0: so this is a good segue, actually. Let's pivot to talking about residents' councils and the role they play in helping residents advocate for what they want and need. Okay, let's bring in Dee. Well, hi, my name is Dee
4: Tripp. I'm the Executive Director of OARC, the Ontario Association of Residence Councils.
0: OARC is a not-for-profit association funded primarily through the Ontario Ministry of Long-Term Care, and their role is to support residence councils in long-term care homes.
4: So in Ontario, mandated by law, every, every long-term care home must have a residence council. So OARC provides support, education, advocacy to all long-term care homes, residents councils so that their council can be as effective as possible. Uh, The function of a residents council, when you strip it all down, primarily is twofold. One is that a residents council in a long-term care home provides an avenue, a safe space for residents to provide peer-to-peer support to talk about whatever's on their mind, to to share with each other, the good, the bad, the ugly, the celebratory pieces, to build friendship and relationship one with another. The other piece of a residence council is to develop and present consensus decisions and opinions to management teams in each respective long-term care home so that quality improvement and changes can be made within the operations of the home. That reflect residents' desires and lived experience. We always say that um, by virtue of who they are living in long-term care homes 24 hours a day, seven days a week, are experts in their lived experience. So we firmly, firmly believe that no policy, no decision, no direction should be made or developed without tapping into the resident opinion.
1: Okay, so a couple of things to mention. We won't get into it here, but we just wanted to call out that we've done episodes on the notion of expertise and interrogated the idea that lived experience is an expertise in its own right. So if thinking about this further interests you, we've put links to relevant episodes in our show notes. Yeah, that will
0: be a fun rabbit hole for someone to go down. Um, okay, so the other thing we noticed is that D refers to consensus decisions and opinions, which suggests that there's general agreement among residents. Now that can't be easy to attain when there's such a diversity of needs, abilities, and capacities, a point that Devora illustrates well.
2: You can't paint all residents with the same brush, right? And so we have to be mindful of that. Uh, I think maybe there are three of us or four of us, or maybe five at the most, can sit around and chat.
0: Yeah, so this was shared by Gail as well. In any long-term care home, there are relatively few residents who have capacity to hold detailed conversations or clearly express their needs. So we wanted to dig a bit deeper into understanding how residence councils work and to what extent they do actually represent the full diversity of the resident population.
1: To get us started, we asked Gail to describe how she got involved in her home's residence council and also how she got involved with the OARC.
3: In the first six months of being here, I was already noticing issues, problems, challenges that myself and other residents were having and thinking there's got to be a way to address these things. And it was the recreation manager that approached me um, and said, we are resuming our residence council after it being on hiatus through COVID. And uh, we don't have a leader right now in the residence council. And you seem to be focusing on a lot of the um, issues that would be handled by the Residence Council anyway. So how would you feel about, you know, putting your name forward to uh, act as president? So that's how I ended up at Residence Council. Through that, I came to OARC because our Residence Council has... You know, OARC has a lot of uh, documentation prepared for how to run an effective residence council and samples of, you know, agenda forms and various documentation, that kind of thing. And that's how I first learned about the OARC and just in questioning uh, some of the aspects of running a residence council became more involved with OARC, which became a secondary intellectual outlet for me. As far as our resident council here goes, there are very few people who are either interested or capable of participating in residence council. So we don't have a formalized um, executive for the resident council. I, I act as president and we have someone who takes notes and um, that's kind of the, the extent of our formalized structure. Other than that, everyone who attends participates. Everyone has a voice. there, And there is um, a portion of the agenda that allows for open communication between all of the residents. And um, it, that seems to work really well for us.
1: Devorah also shared her experience with her Residence Council.
3: Okay, some of what Gail
2: said is applicable to my Residence Council, but you have to realize how sometimes you need to handle this is by getting to know your residents. I have residents outside my door, and I know them. They don't speak. One of them makes a sound. And she grabs me when... Oh, they all grab me when they come out the door. And they want to speak to me. They make noises. They touch. There are different ways of speaking with these people. They, They are residents. Every resident that lives in the home has a vote or a voice in Residence Council. Every single person regardless of their cognitive ability the people with more cognitive ability are probably better aimed at at running the residence council which is is a terrific organization it's as one of our residents said it's a lifeline between a home and the residents who live there. And so this is how residents who can't speak, who I try to get to know them and know their likes and their dislikes because I'll tell them they look nice and they'll pat me. If I pat them, they'll smile. Um, I can read them. I really can. I can read them. One lady here loves bananas. So when I have a banana, I always give it to her. You know, another lady likes yogurt. Another one likes something else. It, it's amazing how you can speak to them. It really is.
1: Okay, there's a lot to think about here. Yeah, a
0: lot. Okay, so first of all, Devorah is absolutely right in saying that nonverbal communication is an important part of developing relationships and getting to know one another. And I think her point, too, is that people in long-term care are far too easily dismissed as having nothing to say, which of course does them a terrible disservice. But I'm curious how these encounters actually translate
1: into the context of the residence council. Like... Can you reasonably represent someone's interests just by knowing their personal habits and preferences? Well, maybe it's a start. Gail elaborated on why these kinds of ongoing
0: personal interactions really matter.
3: The work of residence council doesn't just happen during the meeting. It happens talking to people You know, outside of the meeting. People either come to you with issues or you just hear about things as people are chatting. And I take note of that stuff. and. So when I get to Residence Council, the formalized meeting portion, um, there may or may not be people in in the um, audience who are, I don't mean audience, but in the team that are um, bringing forward an issue. But if there isn't, I have all of these other things that have come up, cropped up since the last meeting that I've heard about or people have come to talk to me about. And I'll simply bring it up as, you know, someone has expressed the following and um, bring, bring up that concern. And sometimes it, it spurs other conversation with other residents and sometimes it doesn't, but it's always actionable by the residence council. So the formalized portion happens once a month, you know, in, in your home, but the process of residence council is an ongoing
1: thing. So we brought this same question to Dee at OARC. How do you try to ensure that the residents' councils indeed reflect the consensus decisions and opinions of the residents at large when many of the residents can't contribute directly? That is the million-dollar question that, that
4: we grapple with. The reality is that within long-term care homes, anywhere from 65 to 80% of the residents who live in the homes have some sort of cognitive change which inevitably means that that many many people are unable to speak for themselves. Devora has been with OARC for over 10 years and she has said um, many times that being involved with OARC has saved her life because she had you know many of the activities that are are provided for and plan for in long-term care homes target or, or um, serve residents who are unable to, to speak for themselves or who are living with some, some sort of cognitive change. So it's very, very important that we provide an opportunity to link many of the residents in Ontario who are not living with cognitive change so that they can share their experiences.
0: So. What I'm taking away is that this issue of varying levels of cognitive capacity is not an easy problem to solve. And what Dee mentions here maybe speaks more to their social mandate of connecting residents to share their experiences and provide
1: support to each other. hmm But related to advocacy, Dee went on to explain that family members play a vital role in helping to round out the contributing voices.
4: Part of the magic that, that makes that happen is when resident leaders in a home work with family members, essential family caregivers. Now, the, the residence council meeting proper is a meeting that is uh, only residents attend those meetings. And family councils, only family members attend those meetings unless other people are invited. So we do not advocate that residents attend family council meetings or vice versa because the conversation changes. But what we do promote and encourage is that residents have opportunities and seek out opportunities to, to talk with essential family caregivers, to learn about their friends, their colleagues, their, their um, co-residents to the degree, to
0: the best possible degree that they can. Okay, so we know a bit about the residence councils themselves. Now, they get support from the OARC, which residents can also be involved in. For example, the OARC Board of Directors has four spaces for elected long-term
1: care residents. Yeah, and they also have an advisory group called R.E.A.L., which stands for Resident Expert Advisor and Leader. Right. Here's D.
4: This group is made up of residents who live across
1: the province. We
4: have capacity for 12 resident R.E.A.L. group members. And this is our group that is really boots on the ground. These resident leaders um, participate in media consultations, government tables. They speak with researchers. Um, They speak at colleges and universities and high schools. They uh, contribute to OERC's capacity in truly representing Again, the consensus view of residents across the province because these, these resident leaders are from across the province. Uh, and that's how I know Gail and Devorah. Gail and Devorah um, are resident leaders with OARC.
0: So both Gail and Devorah have an on-the-ground perspective as well as a bird's-eye perspective through OARC. And in our interviews with them, it was impossible not to talk about the pandemic and its impact on a number of fronts.
1: Yep, COVID threw everything into turmoil. Devorah shared with us some of what she experienced as a resident.
2: As I told you, I'm in long-term care 11 years, so I went through the full pandemic. For me, it was a nightmare. They took me out of my room, gave me a bin, and told me to pack five changes of clothes and whatever else I needed. And this was nine o'clock and I was moving at one o'clock. I couldn't take my computer. I managed to take my iPod and my phone. I insisted, I'm not going out of here without those things. And they put me in a room Everything was covered with black garbage bags, had no room to hang my clothes, had no room to put any toiletries. I and the only person, people I saw were people with masks. All I saw were eyes. If not for OARC, I would have never known what was going on. Our human, communication in the home was nil, and I was in that room for three-and-a-half months.
0: Mm, what an
1: experience, and probably not unique. And maybe needless to say, there was no active residence council.
2: Oh, I was going to say that. Yeah, we had no no residence council. We just resumed a couple of months ago after three and a half years.
0: You'd think that having an active residence council throughout the pandemic would have been a priority, even in times of isolation and uncertainty. I mean, it's not like there wasn't the technology or means for residents to connect. Gail commented on this as well. I think that during COVID, it probably was the most
3: important time to have an active resident council if for nothing else but to filter communications through because the biggest problem during COVID on the resident base was lack of knowing what was going on. Lack of knowing what the restrictions were, the changes to the restrictions, new, new restrictions, new guidelines, new rules. Um, it was abysmal and an active resident council could have mitigated that a little bit. So yes, it's unfortunate. I was fortunate in that uh, they resurrected our residence council as early on as they did, because there were places that was much, much later before they got their resident council up and working again. And your resident council is your line into the administration. It's your, you know, it's your vehicle to the organization and, and changing policy within the home are trying to enact change. So having nothing in place for a length of time is, it can only be detrimental to the resident base. And that's really unfortunate. A home can can put a resident council into place and check that box but it doesn't mean that you're going to have something that perhaps works or works well or addresses, you know, resident problems or challenges. For nothing else but to protect resident rights, you know, a resident's council is imperative. Everything else is kind of icing on the cake, but first and foremost, you have to do that.
1: Okay, so what Gail is describing here is something really fundamental. Of course, communication is important, as is a sense of community that Dee described earlier. But Gail is talking about residents' rights. And for Gail, it's about having the same rights as everyone else, including peers who don't live in long-term care.
0: Yes, in the context of COVID, she's referring to the fact that residents of long-term care homes were subject to rules and restrictions that people living in their own homes didn't experience. And this continues currently. There are more restrictions if you're inside the four walls than if you're outside the four walls. Both Gail and Devora see
1: this as unfair. Yeah, I mean, I can see their point. I think wider society has thought of people in long-term care as needing special protections. And plus the fact that
0: it's a workplace, with casual or agency staff potentially moving from home to home.
1: So precautions are important. Yeah, that too. I mean, it's easy to assume that LTC homes should have the most restrictions. And yes, there's a case to be made. But the argument that Gail, Devora, and the OARC are making is that residents should have had a say. It should have been better informed. should have been involved. Right, and there's so much variance from home to home in terms of
0: how residence councils are run and the extent to which they have actual influence. Which is why mandates requiring residence councils are really only as successful and meaningful as each home makes it. There's so much inconsistency. Devorah notes how important it is for the residence councils to have the support of management in each home.
2: It's essential that the residents have a relationship with the management, especially with the administrator. I feel it's very important for the, the administrator to be visible. I don't like people coming up to me and saying, "Who that lady? Well, that's the administrator. Oh, I feel that residents need to be better informed to make a better home and residence council. You have to have people work with you. There has to be a relationship between all the management, specifically the administrator. But there are also management. Like there's a girl, the receptionist. She gets all my faxes, and she brings everything down to me as soon as it comes in. That's also part of working with council.
1: Right. So every interaction, every bit of support, it all matters and the work has to be taken seriously, treated as important. So here's Gail. I think
3: that an effective council is going to be able to collect input from the residents and have a process to action those things, or to bring them to the attention of the departments that require the uh, information. So that's one piece. So you have to have the, you have to have the Residence Council working as an effective vehicle. Then the problem is that you have to have the recipients on the end of, on the other end of that request or information to be of a culture that is working towards the best for the residents. And that's not always the case. It's often if you bring up an issue or a problem, a challenge, something that's not working, you can check the box to say you've actioned something and still be ineffective. By that I mean, if i bring a problem to to a department's attention if all i get in re- as a response is the rationale for why it's the way it is
0: that's not helpful okay so what we're hearing is that it's all well and good to mandate councils but they have to be properly resourced and supported and that's no easy task here's d
4: the compounding issue is across the board Every department uh, in long-term care, there is a human resource crisis. Um, the sector is drastically understaffed, and it was understaffed prior to COVID. During the last three years, there's been a hemorrhaging of, of team members within the long-term care home sector, and we are drastically understaffed now. In the best of times, when residence councils are functioning, they are under-resourced, And with the lack of staff in homes now, the councils are often pushed to the back burner, um, supported off the edge of someone's desk, and, and quite frankly, neglected. For something to be mandated, it implies that it's essential. For something to be essential, it implies that they need to be resourced. OERC's recent proposal uh, we we do have a proposal into the Ministry of Long-Term Care for additional funding. The title of our proposal is legislatively mandated, operationally essential, to stress that that very point. During the height of COVID, residents councils were neglected and they fell silent in many homes. In addition to that, residents told us that any positive steps that their home had taken uh, with positive culture change had gone backwards 10 steps during COVID. And what I mean by that is um, communication with residents, authentic engagement, conversations, and, and just raw communication between residents and management was very, very poor. Residents were isolated. They were lonely. And so further to what's the problem, we have to understand the context from, wh- from which we're coming right now with the past three years of drastic and ongoing restrictions. Residents' councils are the one and only protected venue in a long-term care home for residents to shape the place they call home.
0: So OARC is seeking more funding to help support their work, both in the homes and provincially, which will definitely help with what they're trying to achieve. But here's the thing.
4: You know, it's, it's not about money.
0: It's not about the money. Or it's not only about money.
4: It is fundamentally about authentically believing in, believing in, in the mandate as human beings, we do what's important to us at any given moment in any day, every day, we do what's important to us. And if supporting and recognizing seniors and thereby residents in long-term care homes, if valuing people who live in long-term care homes is legitimate, then then you pull out the stops. You know, no matter if you're a policymaker, no matter if you're a frontline team member in the home, if you're there because it matters and you are living, breathing, working, and developing policy and rules and regulations to support the fact that people matter, then the rest is just gravy.
1: So yeah, this came up a lot with all three of our guests. I mean, it's not only a question of having proper supports. It's also about needing a wholesale culture change in terms of how people, the public, think about long-term care. As Devora mentioned at the beginning, people live in long-term care so that they can get the support they need. It shouldn't be thought of as a place that people go to die.
0: Yep, it's likely this mindset that has held back progress in terms of giving long-term care residents an actual meaningful say in how things are run.
4: So often government policies or even home management policies say, we are the professionals, we will do too, we will design policies that protect residents from, but residents have said to us, you know what, we want to be part of the solution. So give us the tools that we need so that we can live with and connect well with people who can't speak for themselves.
1: For Gail? Being part of the solution means setting the stage for collaboration.
3: So first you need an effective resident council. then you need a collaborative culture. And that's a piece that's really missing. Collaborating with residents is not standard practice in long-term care. And it truly is a culture shift. And that's where we need to get to. Historically, long-term care homes or nursing homes, as they were called before that, homes for the aged, they were run by the administrator. The administrator or the CEO made the rules and everyone under them followed them. And they were all acting for the quote-unquote betterment or the best environment for the residents, but only as they saw it only as they perceived the best thing for the residents to be. the culture change is that the residents are saying we can speak for ourselves. We can tell you what's the best for us. And that's when Resident Council steps in and says, let me act as a an organized um, an organized, group to highlight these problems so that we're going to distill the information from all of these inputs into a a thread of um, process that the resident council can act upon and then liaise with the management team. That's the ideal. As long as you have a collaborative environment and and um, and an organization that is willing to give up that control,
0: D takes this idea a step further. Collaboration is important, of course, but the integration of residents' needs and priorities should begin much sooner.
4: So often,
0: when there are decisions
4: to be made in a home or decisions to be made at a policy level, whether it's government level or or at, at the home level, um, the policy is drafted. And then if if residents are lucky, they are invited to review something that's already been crafted. So what I'm saying is that at the design stage to to pull in an ideas sharing opportunity with residents to identify truly what is what is the source of the outcome that you're looking for what is the the problem the issue the challenge that you're trying to to solve as identified by residents many of the decision makers in government likely have never set foot in a long-term care home perhaps have never spoken with a resident And that
3: matters. Yeah, it's so important that
2: decisions be made before. I mean, what is the sense to making a decision for, for people who live in a home? What you think is right for them may not be what they think is right for them. So what is the point? If I'm supposed to think of where I live as my home, there are a lot there are a lot of things that are not going right. Can't call it my home. It has to change.
1: Hey Emily. Hey Jen. So, key takeaways.
0: Well, first and foremost. I think there's no reasonable argument against residents being more involved in determining how they should live their lives not only in terms of how their homes are run but also in terms of weighing in on their own acceptable degrees of risk.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. This shouldn't exactly be controversial. But, you know, come to think of it, with all the COVID media coverage over the past couple of years, we kind of heard from everyone but residents their voices were drowned out by health professionals, politicians, and even family members and caregivers. Which brings us to another takeaway, I think, and that's the critically important nature of the involvement of the OARC. Yeah, typically in organizational healthcare, we see patients, caregivers, and family members individually invited to participate in various councils or advisories. We've talked about how this may fulfill institutional agendas, but may or may not actually improve conditions for patients more broadly. Yeah, exactly.
0: But with this larger umbrella organization, there's a better chance for impactful representation at the different levels of government and for the homes themselves to respond more positively to the councils. It's organized, politically attuned, and focused on the needs of residents.
1: Yeah, this is kind of a departure from typical organizational engagement activities. I guess more like a hybrid model. There's individual participation at the level of the home, but with support and guidance of a larger, dedicated organization. Yeah, it's really interesting, but I mean, not without some complexity.
0: The Ontario government actually funds the OARC, so their advocacy has a particular tone, let's just say. Dee mentioned at one point that their approach is not about protesting and noise making. It's about ensuring they're at the right tables with the right people and continuously seeking venues where they can amplify resident voices. It's a more collaborative type of advocacy. Sure,
1: you know, that makes sense, which I'm sure comes with some trade-offs. But what's super clear is that OARC is performing an important function for residence councils and therefore for residents themselves. We asked Dee for some final thoughts on what needs to change. What needs to change
4: is is a a culture shift. There's a predominant view that people who live in long term care are, you know, plucked out of community and put somewhere else. And what we're saying is that, you know what, residents who live in long term care are just as much a part of the community as they were prior to moving into long term care, that they are Vital contributors to to decisions and their even even residents who cannot speak for themselves are able to contribute to their own quality of living. So I guess what needs to change bottom line is is an understanding that. Even in advanced age with comorbid illnesses with cognitive changes. People still are valuable contributors to community, to their life. You know, it's an underpinning of everything that, that we do, that residents are full contributors, full human beings. And I think Gail and Devora are excellent examples of that.
0: Big thanks to Devora, Gail and Dee for sharing their experiences and insights. And a special shout-out to our friend, Krista Hanstra, for connecting us to OARC and helping us navigate this topic. Matters of Engagement is written and produced by Jennifer Johannesson and Emily Nicholas Engel. If you have feedback, ideas, or just want to say hello, please get in touch through our website at mattersofengagement.com. This series is supported by the Public Engagement in Health Policy Project, which promotes research, critical reflection, and dialogue about engagement issues that have a health and health policy focus. Learn more about this Future of Canada project at engagementinhealthpolicy.ca